We will now take some time to take any questions you may have from the last, this Sunday, last Sunday, this whole issue of Israel and the church. If you missed last week, what's this all about? Why are we talking about it? Now's the time to throw that on the table. Questions, thoughts, haikus, donations. Yes, I would love a tissue. That's a donation I will receive. Thank you. You're welcome. Put this back on. There we go. Okay. Questions? Well, either I spoke very, very clearly or very, very unclearly. Greg Sweet. Sure. Mm. So Greg's question for the tape is, this all Israel, go to Romans 11, which is where the quotation is found. Go to Romans 11. And when Paul says, in this way, all Israel be saved, Greg wants to know, can we quantify, does it really mean every single last Israelite? Now let me first punt. I'll give you an answer, but let me first defer to Daniel I know Daniel did a research paper on that exact question when he was in school with me. I remember him, does all mean all? I tend to think it does. Um, I tend to think it does mean the entire nation of Israel. Although, because of the Bible's use of round numbers, it wouldn't shake me up too much if we found out there were 15 holdouts who, you know what I mean? It's, it's enough that you can say truly all of them. So when it says, an all Israel... Even in any other Old Testament passage, in all Israel with one voice, praise the Lord. There is nobody who is silent. There is nobody who had a sore throat that day. It's an, it's an overwhelming majority sufficient that you can with full accuracy say all Israel. Now, one way you have an overwhelming majority is that's everyone. I'm, I'd be open. I would not freak out if it, and that's the most natural sense, Greg. I just wouldn't freak out if we found out everyone meant 99.9999999%. That wouldn't throw me too much for a loop, but Daniel might disagree with me. No, Daniel thinks all means all. That's what Daniel thinks. Um, that's fine. But I haven't studied it like he has, so I'm saying with the study that I've had of this, and I've done some study of it, the most natural sense would be all. But when you're talking about a nation, all everyone went over here, you've got to leave room for, except the sick people, or except the, you know what I mean? So when all Israel crossed the Jordan, you know, wasn't there any, was there anyone? Well, probably that means all, but again, I wouldn't freak out if we found out there's a guy who broke his leg on a stretcher who was left behind. But yeah, I'd take all to mean all. It's the same language of Zechariah 12. Go to Zechariah 12. Keep, keep your finger in Romans and keep your finger in Zechariah. We'll probably bounce between the two a little bit here. Because I think what Paul's talking about in Romans 11 is exactly what Zechariah is talking about in chapter 12, um, the national conversion of Israel. Verse 10. And those of you, you're probably beginning to get, I'm a, I get excited, I'm really, I really delight in, I am passionate about Zechariah 12.10. It's, it's, it's a great, great verse. And I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, 
on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning in Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the families of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, their wives by themselves, and all, all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And that sure looks like everybody. Um, that sure looks like everybody. So I, I would default to the most natural understanding is everybody's becoming a Christian at that point. Everybody's repenting and believing their Messiah. Um, but when you're dealing with such overarching national terms, I'm just saying it wouldn't freak me out too much if we get there and find out he meant everyone except for a small handful. It sure looks like everybody. So I would default to that. I just don't want to press those language when you're using... When it says David had 40,000 men, I'm not going to freak out if we found out he had forty. 39,873. There's a sense in which you use round numbers in history. You know what I mean? It's accurate. It, it certainly has to be enough conversion that all Israel's believing in a very real and literal sense. That, yes, Elsa. Right, right. The, 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 the point is, with what Paul's going is, and if we had more time, I would have said, he's currently saving a remnant, and the remnant is the minority of Israel, and the rest are hardened. But there's going to come a day where the living national Israel and the elect remnant are one and the same, where the generation of Jews in that day are all the elect remnant. That's, that's, that's the culmination that's happening. So in the meantime, there's this thin little stream, and eventually that stream's going to broaden out to be a broad ocean, where... There is no distinction between elect Israel and national Israel. They are elect. They are faithful. They are believing. But if MacArthur says it, that's got to settle it. So there's really no further point. Did you have more to go on that, Greg, or is that, does that cover, cover your question? Okay, Dan Barth. I was talking to Zeb about this because Zeb has, a, he's not a covenant theolo- theology expert, but he's got a fair number of friends who are, and, and we were chatting. Neither him nor I have really seen anyone really um, deal with um, chapter 11 of Romans. In fact, there, are, there is a subset of covenant theology. R.C. Sproul, for instance, just recently in the last decade or so came to this view that says, I can't get around this. Now, he doesn't think there's a future for Israel. He just thinks at the end times there will be a mass conversion of Jews into the church. Um, he doesn't buy the whole package. But he, even he, as a, as a staunch, you know, the church is Israel guy, um, there's no way around this. There's, there's going to be, even Luther was expecting, because Luther, Martin Luther thought he was living in the last days. He called the Pope the Antichrist, stuff like that. He was, he was pleasant. Luther had a sharp pen. Um, and... And he was, there's evidence that he was expecting early in his ministry to see a mass conversion of Jews. I know that in the, towards the end of his life, he became very cynical and wrote some really harsh things. The Nazis were able to use that and, and help teach the German people that anti-Semitism was Lutheranism, which it isn't. But there were enough sermons. The very last sermon Luther ever preached before he died was pleading with the princes to expel the Jews from Germany. 
But early in his ministry, he was very optimistic because reading passages like this, he was expecting to be well-received by the Jews. When the Jews spurned the gospel, then he hardened his heart to them and it shifted. But even Luther reading this was expecting, at least initially, a mass conversion of Jews since he thought he was living in those last days. He thought the Pope was the Antichrist. So I don't think, you can, I don't think anyone can honestly get away from there's something for Israel in the future. Um, you want to add anything to that, Zeb? Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, what, what Mr. Um, Mr. Brewer, yes? Papa. Papa. What Papa? Here's another name. Papa. Okay, sorry, my brain, my, you gotta, my, my, my brain is slipping today. Um, is, is dealing with, is even a subset. You're, you're right. I've avoided going that deep because you're dealing with a subset of covenant theology, amillennialism. There's, there's, there's all sorts of views. Everyone has to deal with the millennium because there's a thousand years in Revelation and there's a kingdom promised in the Old Testament. As, as a way of a brief survey, the, the views break down into two camps, dispensational premillennialism, which is big words for what our doctrinal statement says, what we believe here, and then there's covenant theology. Um, if, within dispensational premillennialism, Dispensational meaning, we're not the church, this is a specific age, a time, God's dealing with the church, this is the time of the Gentiles, the Gentiles are coming in, and when the fullness of the Gentile comes in, then according to Romans 11, God will convert Israel and revert to a plan with them. They're different tracks, they, 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 there's overlap, there's compliment, um, complementing, but they're, they're not the same. But if you think they're the same track, within that view there's subsets, there is historical premillennialism, which says there will be a millennial reign of Christ on earth. There's just a denial that it will be centered around Israel, Jerusalem, or of any specific reference to the Jews. Um, so that would be historic premillennialism. So yes, Christ will reign on the earth. Yes, there will be a millennial reign. But it doesn't have to be, there's nothing specifically Jewish about it. There's nothing um, Jerusalem-centric about it. The meek will inherit the earth. That's historic premillennialism. Then you get to awe millennialism which was the theology of Luther and the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church and most Presbyterian. This is probably, would you say amillennialism is the biggest covenant position? Yeah, amillennialism is... Okay, yeah, yeah. And when you put the alpha primitive in something, you negate it, right? So you got moral and amoral. So amillennialism is the belief there will not be a physical... Um, historic millennium, but rather we are living in that period now. Satan is bound now. Um, and all those things happening in the kingdom are happening spiritually. When we talk about spiritualizing the text, it's all millennialism that has to do the most spiritualizing, by far and away. 
um, because you can't get around like how is how is Christ raised? How is how is Satan bound now? When you see what's going on with ISIS on the news, Satan's bound, really. Okay, and what are all these promises mean? Well, they're spiritual promises. Okay, that's all millennialism. That is the overwhelming majority view of covenantal theology, and probably the overwhelming majority view of those who call themselves Christians alive today and historically even. Um, he's reigning in my heart, Greg. Sorry, I'm trying. To, I'm not trying to be facetious. Yeah, Christ's reign is 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 difficult to understand, but it gets all spiritualized. The kingdom's advancing as the gospel advances, and Christ is ruling in His people, and so all these land kingdom language gets transferred to spiritual realities of Christ ruling and the throne of your heart, and and the gospel going out and advancing. And there is truth to that. I mean, that's true. God's kingdom is advancing. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's not the fullness of the truth, but that's true as far as it goes. Um, if someone. Yeah, let, let me, actually, I'm, you, I might, you and I might be in disagreement. Let me tweak that here. Christ, Christ at the ascension, Christ was inaugurated king. His rule has been inaugurated. But according to Psalm 110 and Hebrews, the book of Hebrews quotation of it, he is, he is awaiting the actualization of his rule fully till his enemies are made a footstool. So there's a sense in which he's not reigning like he will be. He is not yet ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, okay, yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's that's the problem. The best analogy that I've the best analogy that I see is in the Bible. And remember, Jesus is David's greater son, right? And so we expect the events of the life of David to predict, to foreshadow the events of Jesus' life. Jesus, I would say, is very much in the situation of David after he was inaugurated king. As soon as David was inaugurated king, did he go to the castle or whatever the headquarters was and sit on a throne? He spent 40 years, and he refused to strike, take out his hand and strike down Saul, waiting on God's time for God to strike down his enemy. Now, God's already made him king, and he's beginning to rule people. He's got a band of men that, he's, that are following him, right? You see, the, you see the comparison, the analogy? 40 years, David is the, the, uh, the anointed king, while Saul is the titular practicing king. And then, in God's timing, David is the reigning king. Christ now has been given the name above all names. Christ has been made, declared by God by virtue of the resurrection and ascension, the, the Lord above all lords, and he's awaiting God in his timetable to make his enemies a footstool under his feet till he returns and enters into his kingdom. So that's our understanding. So he is reigning, but not like he will. The, theologians often speak of this now-not-yet tension in the Bible. Is Christ reigning? Well, he is now, but not like he will be. But yes, he's reigning now. Not like he will be. So, um, okay. And then there's the final view is post-millennialism, and then I'll get to Kevin. Post-millennialism is the one that to me is the hardest to wrap my head around. It is the belief that there will be a millennial reign, but the millennial reign could last a lot longer than a millennium, but that we have to bring it about by making the entire world Christian. Um, 
so that what post-millennialism sees is more and more the world is going to become more and more Christian, more and more Christian. You're actually going to get countries becoming theocratic Christian countries as, as the tipping point hits and 70, 80% of their citizens are Christians and they enact Sabbath laws and they enact... And, and so in post-millennialism, there's a huge desire for political involvement because part of what God wants to accomplish will involve the geopolitical takeover or, or the geopolitical absorption of all earthly governments and only when the church is ruling all nations and all the world is Christian, then Christ will return. Um, that, to me, is the most unrealistic, just because I've read enough history. Um, it might have, I can see how someone might think that during the height of the Roman Catholic Empire, when most of the world was Christian, like, we're almost there. But after going through World War I, World War II, and with what's going on now, it's hard to see that, I, anyway. But there's good guys, good guys who I profit from who hold the post-millennialism. So those are the, those are the major views. You got historic pre-mill, Dispensational premill, amillennial, and postmillennial. Um, those are your main. You don't worry about these terms, but those are the main divisions amongst Orthodox, gospel-loving brothers and sisters that we're going to worship God in glory forever and ever with. Those are the those are the views. Uh, okay, more questions. Yes, Kevin. Um, well, the Muslims, of course, I, as I understand it, they believe um, they believe the Bible is correct in many respects, and Jesus was a prophet, but the Bible got some things wrong. For instance, Jesus didn't die on a cross because prophets don't get martyred. Um, they also believe that Ishmael received the inheritance and birthright, not Isaac, and they are Ishmaelites. Thus, their claim to the land, and thus God's promise that Ishmael and Isaac would forever be at enmity with each other. Um, it, there's a lot of theories, and you can read books and very um, inventive books on how Islam ties into the end times, how America ties in, because there's not a whole lot that looks like America, even typologically in the book of Revelation. So, will America be gone? Will they be absorbed? I don't know with certainty, Kevin, how that all plays into it. Um, what, what's going to happen, our men's group's going through Revelation. What clearly is going to happen is one figure is going to draw together the warring factions of the world and make peace for a day, or half a day, for three and a half years. There's going to be somebody, some, some person, who's going to be able to settle and create peace in the Middle East. Now, how that's done, I don't know. Will the Muslims still be here? Probably. Uh, well, I, somebody's going to be able to make a peace accord such that the Jews can rebuild the temple and reinstitute worship. And then somebody's going to break that peace. And then literally all hell is going to break loose. Um, and then Christ is going to return. But I, I don't know. You can, is, that what I'm, is that what you're getting at, or am I not dealing with your question? Abraham. No. No. The name Jew comes from Judean. So if you think of a family tree, um, one of my points last week was, yes, we are sons of Abraham, but being sons of Abraham doesn't make us Jews. Um, Abraham is going to be the father of many nations. And we are constantly referred to as sons of Abraham, even today, Paul going back to Abraham and the two sons. But Abraham has other kids. Even after he has Ishmael, he has a bunch of other kids with his second wife, Keturah. Um, and so Abraham fathers many, many nations. Um, so Ishmael is not a Jew. He's a son of Abraham, but he's not a Jew. Jews are sons of Jacob, who gets his name changed to Israel. And then really Jew comes from his son, Judah. 
because the Judeans become named Jews. It's a shortening of Judean um, during the return from Babylon when really Judah is the main tribe in existence. So that's where the term Jew comes from. So if you're a Jew, you're a son of Jacob. Ishmael is not a son of Jacob. He's a son of Abraham. So he's, he's tied in there, but he's at enmity with his brothers. And Muslims are welcome to come to faith, but I see no biblical predictions of any mass Ishmaelite, Ishmaelite conversion. So, not like I see the promises of God pouring out a heart for mercies on Israel. He's free to do it, and we can pray he will. Yes, Deb. Of chapter, chapter 11, 20 and 21. Well, I think part of it is, is dealing corporately. I don't think that it's any one believer, because no individual Jew, no individual Jew was reconciled, elect, chosen, and then cast off. National Israel was. Likewise, no individual Christian can do that. But Jesus warns in the book of Revelation to the church at Ephesus, repent or I'll come and take your lampstand from you. I'll just shut your church off. I'll cut your church off the branches. Um, and so if the church, if the church corporately becomes arrogant, watch out, God can shut us down. God, there is no longer, no, no, no individual believer. This, yeah, the threat goes it's dealing with a national people, a, a corporate group of people, and then becomes a corporate. Although, let me, let me qualify that and say, if you remember from Timothy, it is true that if you and I persist in unrepentant sin, and if we deny Christ, he will deny us. Our hope is the shepherd won't let that happen. But if those conditions could be met, we would perish. So there is a sense in which, yeah, you know, I, I believe I'm, I'll quote Piper here, I believe I'm a Christian, I trust I'm a Christian, I've seen fruit in my life, but... But if somehow I'm able to leave my wife, go marry another woman, become a Mormon, and spend the rest of my days in that religion, I should expect to go to hell. Because I will prove that I'm really not his kid because the shepherd didn't come after me. Right? Um, it's not that I lost my salvation, but the shepherd, if I was his sheep, he would have come after me. He disciplines all his sons. He scourges those whom he receives. And if you've not received discipline, then you're not sons. You're demonstrating you're not his by the fact that he doesn't come after you and he doesn't leave the 99 and pursue you and bring you back and if you need to be, break your legs. So there is a sense in which the Bible can put some pretty heavy threats out there. You better persevere. You need to persevere. You just got to lay both sides of that because I'm not trusting in my own power to persevere. My, my confidence that I'll make it to the finish line is not... I've got a lot of determination, and I've got a lot of faith in me, and I'll make it. My confidence is he will hold me fast, and my anchor holds fast. My confidence is he's not going to let me slip through his fingers. That's my confidence in my salvation, not I'm pretty determined, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it. My confidence is my shepherd will leave the 99 and come after me. And though my heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, he will take and seal my heart for his courts above. Okay? Other questions? Okay, going once, going twice. Okay, now we're going to turn to our next controversial topic. Okay, who here needs any of the handouts in the last couple weeks? Okay, can I get a volunteer to help pass some stuff out for me here? Jonah, would you be so kind? 
I need these. If you could pass out any of these to anyone who needs them, that'd be great. Shifting gears. And we'll hear some more about this next week when um, Daniel, Daniel next week is going to be talking about the, the Messianic kingdom. What is this kingdom that I've been referencing constantly and just trying to deal with that? That'll be our final part of the introduction to the final part of Zechariah. So. So, as we turn gears in our study, um, we've been going through the doctrines of the Christian faith, and we've been dealing now with the issue of, first we dealt with what is the gospel, what is the content of the gospel, and we dealt with that the content of the gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf for our sins according to the scripture. Fully God, fully man. That is the content of the gospel. There's, the gospel is a message. Okay, I'll, I'll just wait. I'll wait. We good? Are we out? Oh, we're, we're out. Is there any married couple who could spare one for... Um, Zeb's got a green one. Or Zeb, can you run some copies of a new one? Jake's got one. Jake... Do we need to make some photocopies? Okay, let's just... Zeb, do you know how to use the photocopier? Can you just make, like, 20 of these? 20. 20. Should be fun enough. We'll go make some copies. I'll catch you up to speed. Okay. Okay. So we shift then from the gospel message to what the gospel calls from us. What, what does the gospel demand of us? Um, because not all people share in the blessings, the benefits of the gospel. Then what is required of me to be saved? And so we started on the green sheet. By, if you ask that question, what must you do to be saved? The Bible has three broad um, sets of terms that, ways of speaking about this. There's many more than even that. Um, I was reading through Romans 9, 10, 11. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What must I do to be saved? Call upon the name of the Lord. That's biblical, right? Um, what must I do to be saved? You must receive Jesus. There's only one or two passages for each of those, but for each of these three points, there's just scads of texts. The three most common ways, in other words, and these aren't the three only ways the Bible can speak of what the gospel requires of me, are the following. Sometimes the command is to repent. Some examples of that would be the very first sermon at Pentecost by Peter. No mention of calling them to faith, he's calling them to repentance. Um, it would be Jesus and John the Baptist preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and we could look through, and we did look through all those passages, or just repentance in the book of Acts. They're listed there. You can look them up. I'm not going to read them all through now. Sometimes that is. We got you know, a good dozen or so New Testament passages where it's just repent. Then, sometimes the command is to believe or have faith, the Greek pistis word family. Um, and there's dozens and dozens of passages for that as well. Some of the most well-known, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever, um, for God so loved the world that he, wow, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, the problem with learning it first in the King James and the New American Standard, then the ESV, is you end up with the New King American Standard mess. 
mess. Um, and you get tripped up. Okay. And so we, we all know, and I didn't put as many passages here just because I assume we're all convinced. Yes, of course, the Bible is quite comfortable saying, what must you do to be saved? You must believe. You must have faith. Right? Bob is quite comfortable saying that. And sometimes, oftentimes, the command is to both repent and believe. Sometimes they're put together. As in when Jesus began preaching in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Or Acts 19, where Paul is summarizing his ministry as one of calling people repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Acts 21, where, G, where Paul again, speaking to the Ephesian elders, says of his ministry, there's one of calling men to repentance to God and faith in Jesus. And so... What I'm trying to avoid in, in, in making this point, in, in diving in, and I know I'm reintroducing things, but we've, can you just hand out to... Uh, this one's folded. I need another one. Oh, we need another one that's not folded. Okay. Because we haven't, we have, I purposely haven't gotten to this sheet yet, so I'm, I'm stalling for time um, by review. But we've, we, last week we met with uh, Brent Charles, and so it's been a little while, so I'm just sort of recapping, because this is important, and I want to be clear. So my first point, if you develop an argument, is this. As much as we might like it, there is no one unchanging, formulaic answer, biblically, to the question, what must I do to be saved? It is biblical to say you must call upon the name of the Lord. You must believe in your heart. You must receive him. You must look to him. Look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. But the overwhelming, most common answers fall into three categories. Repent, believe, and repent and believe. And so we're to deal with the relationship of those, those two words and when they come together. And the reason why I'm stressing that is this. There's a danger for us to have one category or one phrase. Maybe it's yours is John 1.14, whoever received him. And that's how you got saved. God saved you with John 1. Is it 14 or is it 11? 12. 13. Pi. Um, John 1.12. To as many as received him, he did give them the right to become sons of God. That's your favorite passage. So in your mind now, the only answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, is you need to receive Jesus. That's a biblical answer. Praise God and amen. It's not the only biblical answer. The danger is, this is your beloved passage. You were, you were taught and trained to evangelize using this passage, and now you become uncomfortable with other biblical ways of expressing it. So someone comes along and says, well, you have to believe. And someone comes along and says, you must call upon the name of the Lord. These are all biblical ways of speaking, of coming to salvation. And so my first point is this. We've got to guard against the, the biddyism of looking for a formulaic one-way description. Now, there is only one thing that saves. I'm not saying there are many responses that can save. The Bible is comfortable speaking about this one response in a, in a, in a plurality of, of ways. That, that's my first point, okay? We have a desire to get down to four spiritual laws, one spiritual truth, you know, um, and we want to come down to a formulaic one way only. And the first is we've got to recognize this is a plurality of ways of speaking of this one thing. Now, as Jeremy Sweet said a few weeks ago then, everything hinges on what is meant by faith, what is meant by repentance. But it's undeniably biblical to say you must repent to be saved. It's undeniably biblical to say you must believe to be saved. And it's undeniably biblical to say you must receive Jesus to be saved. These are biblical ways of speaking about it. So whatever disagreement there is when we move into the whole lordship controversy, it can't be at the level of saying these are wrong things to say. It has to be at the level of what do these things mean. 
You with me? Does that, does that distinction make sense? Because there absolutely, I think, can be and is disagreement over what these things mean. I'm just starting by saying, undeniably, the Bible is comfortable saying, you must repent to be saved. Undeniably, the Bible is comfortable saying, you must believe to be saved. It, it just simply says that. Jesus, you think the people in Siloam are worse sinners than you unless you tell you the truth, unless you likewise repent, you too will perish. They would appear to. I, I dodged that just because that's a whole other rabbit trail. Um, no, no, there are. Acts 2, repent and be baptized. It would almost appear that baptism is a category. I did a message on that a few months back. I'd point you to that um, where I deal with the issue of baptism regeneration. I will not deal with that now. So I've only made the first step of introducing the topic. Any questions at that step? This is all hopefully stuff we covered two, three weeks ago. Okay. So then... Then my conclusion and the position I'm going to argue for and the position that the elders in 2012 released a statement in support of what Pastor Gary's taught, um, this, is no, this isn't some sudden change. This is at the bottom of the green sheet. True saving faith must be accompanied by repentance from sin. Conversion is a single act of turning from sin in repentance and turning to Christ in faith. My solution to this problem of either the Bible has got a contradiction because there's, or there's multiple ways to be saved is that here's salvation. Jeremy, please turn away from the north wall. I just turned away from the north wall. Jeremy, please turn towards the south wall. Jeremy, please turn from the north wall and to the south wall. In every instance, I did the same thing. You must repent. You must turn from something. You must believe. You must turn to something. You must repent and believe. You must turn from something to something. That's my way of suggestion of what I believe. Forget suggestion. What I believe, the only way you can adequately deal with the text is to say that's what we're talking about. So the Bible isn't speaking out of both sides of the mouth when the condition is sometimes repent, sometimes believe, sometimes repent and believe. You're grabbing the same action from different ends. You can grab it from the repent angle, you can grab it from the turn towards angle, and you can grab it from both angles. And you're speaking about one and the same thing. There's not multiple gospels out there. That, that's what I'm arguing is the case. I haven't begun to fully argue it. I'm just, that's what I believe, that's what we believe um, the Bible teaches. And so that's what we're going to go forward and move forward. Any questions on that? Yes. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. You could say it's turning from and turning from. Yeah, it's just trying to be clear, clarify. Turning from is the repentance. You're turning from it by means of repentance would be another way of saying it. It's like it's going somewhere by means of car. Repentance, it can mean you can repent of other things other than sin. So you're turning from sin in repentance. You're driving to church in a car. That's my understanding of what the in repentance means. How are you turning from sin? Because there are people who turn from sin not in repentance. People turn from sin because they want raises. They don't want to lose their family. People can turn from drinking alcohol not in repentance, but just for fear of the consequences. So you can turn from sin for a number of reasons. This is turning from sin in repentance. Does that make... Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sure. 
yeah let me okay let me ask that answer that question that's a good side question um I'll try to do this quickly the bible puts forward at least three biblically valid motives for us responding to god faithfully and obediently one is out of love that's clearly the highest motive that the Bible gives, joy and love for God. The joy it gives us because we love him, pleasing him gives us joy. Um, the Bible is also quite comfortable putting a carrot of reward out. Why should I rejoice in the day that I'm persecuted and all men speak evil of me? Why? What does Jesus say? Great is my reward. It's undeniable Jesus will put the carrot of reward out. And so in some sense, looking for a reward is not only necessary, according to Hebrews 11, looking for reward is essential. What, is, what, is Hebrews, what does Hebrews say? Faith is, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who would please him would come, let's, I'm not quoting it, so I will read it. Hebrews 11. And he rewards those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And the third biblical valid motivation is fear of punishment. Repent, or you too will likewise perish. Who told you to flee the wrath of, to come? And so the Bible can put all those things out, the carrot and the stick and the love of God. And I, and I submit my Christian life, I obey God at times from all three motives. The best and highest and fullest reason to obey God is simply because I love him and I want to please him and I find joy in pleasing him. Um, at other times, I'm be honest, I'm just afraid God's going to zap me. And that's good. Now, I don't think you can live your whole Christian life based on I'm afraid God's going to zap me. But clearly, you read through Hebrews, Sometimes, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Beware. Beware. Watch out. Your God's a consuming fire. If we go on sinning deliberately after coming to a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only the certain fearful expectation of fiery punishment and wrath. For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, and again I will repay. Now that is motivating people by fear. Absolutely. Undeniably. I just don't think you're going to be able to make it super far in the Christian life if that's what gets you out of bed every day. But there are some days that might be what gets you out of bed. You know, if that's what it takes to stop you from, from looking at, at porn, is what is God going to do in judging me and my marriage and my life? So be it. If that's what it's going to take to get me to, 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 to love my wife and not yell at her, so be it. It's not the best reason to do it. Now, your question is, when it comes to conversion... Can simply a fear of hell be a sufficient turn to turn to Christ? I don't, I don't think it can, but that's more of what you're turning to. The demons believe and tremble. Demons are terrified of judgment. If, if repentance was simply a fear of the consequences, then the demons are repentant. They're terrified of the consequences. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the time? Please, please, give us permission to go into these pigs. They're scared. They don't, think they, they don't think they can take him. When they see him, they don't go, yeah, well, you know, we're going to take you on. They want to get away from Jesus. They're terrified of him. Um, that's not repentance. Go to, go to John 3. I'll come at this sideways. Because um, I, I think you're right, Linda, that the $8 billion question is what is it mean? What are we talking about here?
Oh, I'm, I'm going to suggest that the same repentant faith that saves is the same repentant faith that sanctifies. So the same motivations that cause me to obey day in and day out is the same seed which caused me to turn to Christ. That there's not like faith one that saves and faith two that sanctifies, but rather um, Christ calls us to in repentance and faith to him, and that same repentant faith or believing repentance or whatever you want to use it is the same thing that causes me to move on. They're not different things. Um, so we can look at my life now as a Christian and how that works, and we can learn something about, about saving faith from that. Um, does that, that make sense? So I'm, I'm assuming they're one and the same. The same faith that causes you to be faithful today is, in principle, the same faith that, that you were saved by back, um, back when you were saved. How, how long have you been a Christian for, Linda? Ah, okay. Okay, quite a while. Amen. Amen. So, John chapter 3. Um, and this is dealing with the question of, uh, is fear of the consequences enough for someone to, to is that, does that constitute a valid motive or a sufficient, let me say sufficient. I think it can be part of a valid motive. I don't think it can be a sufficient motive for, for, to bring someone to faith. I don't think someone can come to faith savingly if they're only scared of hell. Because um, the demons believe and tremble. James says. But in John 3, and, and this is one of the points that I want to get to, and I've, I've tried to make this point repeatedly as we've gone through this, the issue of faith involves far more than assenting to or, or accepting or believing that the gospel claims themselves are true. It's not simply a factual question. It's not simply, do you think Jesus is who he said he is? Do you think he did what he... Th- did. Well, let's use the example now that everyone's got the sheet here on the bottom. Um, after church service, a man comes to talk to you. Now, the reason I give this example is when I was at Word of Life, I got at Word of Life Bible Institute, I got in a number of conversations with the professors. Larry Moyer was a professor. He and I talked, I talked to other people. He was there for a week, but they had other staff who was there the whole time. This, this understanding this issue of what does the gospel call us to is, is a huge priority for me. I spent the better part of that year really on this one issue. And we came up with in our discussions a, a good example that we all agreed fairly represented us. The reason I'm using this is I don't want to make a straw man. I don't want to misrepresent the other guy. It's, we all agreed, yeah, this is, this is where the... And sometimes you've got to figure out where the disagreement is. We don't disagree here, we don't disagree here, we don't disagree here, we don't... Okay, here's where we disagree. So this example is kind of forced, but it was created to illustrate where the disagreement was in a way that both sides were willing to say, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I'm coming from, that, that represents me. So this is me trying to be fair, that's where this illustration came from. After church, a man comes up to talk to you. He tells you that during the service, he has come to believe that he is a sinner. He thinks that's true. Yep, I I do think I'm a sinner. Headed for judgment. He also is convinced of Jesus' claims regarding who he is and what he did on the cross. I, I do think he's the son of God. I do think he died on the cross. I do think that based on that death, God forgives sins. He further believes that it's only through faith in Jesus that he can receive forgiveness of his sins. He then goes on to tell you that he is currently cheating on his wife with another woman whom he claims to love. What he wants to know is if he can continue to maintain this relationship and also receive Jesus and be reconciled with God. So what he's saying is this. 
I am scared of judgment. And I do believe I'm headed for hell. And I do believe I'm a sinner. And you know what? I, I really don't think Jesus could be anyone other than who he said he was. He, he must be the son of God. And I really do believe that it was his death on the cross alone that enables someone to be saved. And I don't want to go to hell, and I would like to go to heaven, but I also would like to continue my affair. So can I become a Christian and maintain my affair? That's his question, okay? So would you answer one of two ways? Yes, you can. All that matters is that you believe and by believe, you believe the things you've said you believe. I'm just confident that once you are saved and born again, you will feel differently about your adultery. So to, to be clear, the guys at Word of Life were not saying, yeah, adultery is fine. What they're saying is get the guy saved first, then, after he's saved, after he's forgiven, then he will repent, then he will think differently about that sin. But don't confuse him with that now. So I'm not, I don't want anyone to think that I'm suggesting that the, the quote-unquote non-lordship view is permissive of sin. It's saying, oh no, yeah, it's fine, you can come out of the church with your adultery, that's fine. They would say, no, um, it's just, it's not, it has, you're mixing apples and oranges. Get him saved, then, with the Spirit of God dwelling in him, then talk to him about his adultery. Okay? That's one answer. The other answer, the one I'm defending, is no, friend, you cannot come to Christ savingly if you still treasure and love your sin more than you treasure Christ. You do not need to end the affair first to be saved. But you should count the cost and decide what you truly desire. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So to be clear, I'm not saying a person has to do anything to be saved. But if you're coming and saying, can I still give myself to my sin? I, I really want to continue this sin. I love it. I like it. It pleases me. Can I give myself to this sin and give myself to Christ? I would say no. No, friends, you can't. You can't intend to. I mean, you'll live the rest of your life struggling to obey one master and resist another, but you can't do both. Um, so no one, neither party is saying you've got to go do something. Neither party is adding work sin. But we are disagreeing. That would be a disagreement. Those are two very different answers, right? So there is a real disagreement here. Um, let me start defending what I'm saying in John 3. John 3. We'll start at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there you go. Clear biblical teaching. We're saved by faith. Now look at this. We're going to find out now, because one of the things, we'll pause, one of the things John is doing, oh wow, we're late. It got that late? Oops. Okay, I'll give you the short answer. We'll read this and we'll stop. Sorry. Um, wow, I just rambled. Someone's got to let me know. Hold up a light or something. Um, the good part, okay, we'll stop, we'll stop, um, is this. This is the judgment, light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does evil, wicked things, hates the light, does not come to the light. See, what you believe and what you love are linked. The reason people don't believe in the light is they hate the light. 
It's not fundamentally because the claim of a crucified Messiah is hard to believe. It's what you love and what you believe are tied together, which is why I would say, no, you cannot love your sin and believe savingly in Jesus. You cannot, the, the two get linked together. You can't say, I really love sin, but I believe in Jesus. No, you don't. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. What I'm saying is right in the moment of salvation, you, you don't come to God with negotiations and, and prenups. Um, you, you come in surrender. You come saying, I, I will endeavor to do what you want me to do. And if you're coming saying, I want to be saved, but I want to clear up front that I get rights to this, this, and this, you, you get the answer the rich young ruler got. Go away sad. That, that's what I'm saying. But we'll, we'll break it here. We'll pick it up next week. And I'll stick around for a few minutes afterwards. We've gone late. I'm sorry. I apologize. Thank you for your patience. God bless.